where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we are here to help you become more bankless. David, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, just tending to my fields. Um, there's a, been a new craze in liquidity mining and yield farming, and so that's kind of captured my attention lately. It has been attention grabbing, uh, and we get into that a little bit with our guest. Uh, yeah, what was your take on this? Yeah, Charlie Noyce, really smart guy, and I was constantly reminded during our conversation with him is, is how young he is, and that's kind of what gets me like so excited about the future of crypto. And it's, it's a part of it's a is a part of the future of crypto that's not coming in like one year, not coming in two or three or four years, but it's really the whole generational shift is that these young young individuals, and I consider myself young, and Charlie is even way way more young than I am are going to come in as crypto natives and be thinking in crypto native terms and are going to really get familiar with economics, with finance, with complicated crypto economic systems. And they're going to be, that's going to be their first monetary system. And I think Charlie is a good representation of somebody who's coming of age as uh, as these crypto platforms like Bitcoin and Ethereum are being understood by the greater world. And so I'm very bullish on this younger generation of, of people that's coming up being crypto native and being able to speak crypto before they're able to speak traditional finance. So do you know how old Alexander Hamilton was when he joined the revolution? I have no idea. 21. Sounds like Charlie. <laughs> right? I mean, Sounds so, like Charlie. Pete, Pete, we, we, we think of uh, many of the founding fathers as you know people like George Washington, Ben Franklin, and we see them in wigs and that sort of thing. We forget that so much of the revolution was fought and won by the very young. Alexander Hamilton, 21. Lafayette, 19 years old. These are the uh, vanguard of the revolution. And why are they doing it? Because they think differently, because they're exploring new opportunities and uh, exploring the, the infinite white space of what could be. Uh, and, you know, Charlie is, is in the revolution for those reasons. Um, so his story is fantastic. We also talk about some pretty in-depth subjects. So it, it starts off kind of higher level, but then we get into something that is super important and rarely discussed. In fact, I've never heard it discussed on a podcast before, and that is the economic security of Bitcoin and Ether. And whether those assets, Ether and Bitcoin, need to become money in order to succeed. I won't spoil it for you, but that is a fantastic section near the end that you absolutely have to, to, to check out. It's not 101 level or, or uh, 200 level. This is 400 level material. I think you're really going to enjoy this important stuff uh, to back up the, the thesis, your thesis for this space. Yeah, and, and what Ryan's talking about, what we were talking about in the podcast with Charlie, the minor extractable value component of these systems is really an unsolved problem in the crypto space, largely being spearheaded by Ethereum researchers. And, um, and so I, I, I always keep, my, keep an eye on what, what they're doing with the whole MEV world. We'll go into it in the podcast and, and make sure that we can explain it. But I think it's going to become a regular topic in the Bankless podcast because of just how important it is. Uh, and so I, I'm looking forward to future content that, that we and future guests that we bring on to discuss minor extract, extractable value because it's a, it's a crucial topic. Yeah, and I think you will be most equipped to uh, think about this if you've listened to a bunch of the other podcast episodes. This is episode 26, uh, but people forget we sort of started this sequentially. 
Um, for folks that are new to Bankless, go ahead and go all the way back to episode one if you need to and start listening uh, because it's sort of each, each of these episodes builds on the last and I think you'll get a great grounding just by starting with one and moving forward all the way to episode 26, which is where we are today. David, before we go any further, we should talk a little bit about our sponsors. The first sponsor I want to tell you about is Aave. Aave is a DeFi protocol that you absolutely have to check out. What can you do with it? You can lend, you can borrow, banklessly, all on Ethereum. So you could do things like lend DAI to the protocol. It will magically transform that DAI into an interest-bearing DAI account. Not just DAI, all sorts of crypto assets on Ethereum. You can also borrow against it. Um, Aave has been climbing up the leaderboard as well, and they've recently released Avanomics, which is their token economics upgrade. You can read more about it. We will include a link in the show notes. So Avanomics grants key decision-making to Aave token holders. It creates more safety and economic incentives to reward protocol growth. One of the coolest things is it actually introduces a safety module. So there is staked Ave becomes a collateral of last resort. You can find out about Ave Avonomics. Start using the protocol at Ave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. For those of you that have been transacting on Ethereum, you've noticed that the gas prices have just been insanely high. You know, 60 GUE on a good day, and sometimes all the way up to 100 GUE, which is really reducing the amount of activities that is really feasible to be able to do on Ethereum. This is where our newest sponsor, Loopring, comes in. Loopring is a ZK rollup scaling protocol for Ethereum for both trading and for payments. Uh, ZK rollups, that stands for zero knowledge rollups. It's basically cryptographic magic. It allows you to combine activity and transactions into one single bit of information, which means that massive amounts of transactions can be bundled into a very small chunk of information, which reduces the gas per transaction. At loopring.io, you can find a ZK rollups-based exchange and also a payment mechanism, all with the same security guarantees of the Ethereum L1 blockchain, which is really important. So loopring and ZK rollups allows you to scale up transactions, tradings, payments into thousands and thousands of transactions per second, but with the same security guarantees of the main Ethereum blockchain, which is just incredible. In September, Loopring is releasing the Loopring wallet. This will be a mobile smart contract wallet with ZK rollups tucked in natively. I'm really excited for how this is going to impact the adoption of Ethereum. The rest of the world will be able to experience Venmo type transactions, but with the same amount of trustlessness and security of the decentralized future ahead of us. So if you're a trader that's being eaten alive by gas fees, visit loopring.io to get onboarded into Ethereum's cheapest and fastest exchange. All it requires is an Ethereum address and you can trade on a high performance order book completely gas free and transferring Ether and ERC20 tokens on the platform is completely free. If you visit loopring.io, enter the code bankless in order to get the highest VIP tier for six months. So check that out. There's a link in the show notes. Visit loopring.io, enter code bankless. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Charlie Noise of Paradigm. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to Charlie Noise as part of our Venture Capitalist series. Charlie is a partner at Paradigm. He is former 
Pantera. He's an incredible thinker in the space. We've had many back and forths on Twitter in the past. He's just a smart <laughs> investor. Um, want to emphasize before getting into this, of course, these are his personal views. He's not speaking on behalf of Paradigm the Fund, but he has offered to share his personal views, and I think those will be very helpful as we think about the space. Charlie, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Um, thank you guys for having me. Uh, I know we can debate pretty frequently on Twitter, but I do think uh, you know this is a really high quality resource for the community. Um, and I'm excited to be on here. Yeah, the advantage of a podcast, of course, is we can carry those things into conversation format and everyone gets to kind of hear about it. Um, you know, Charlie, what I think would be super helpful for our listeners is just to set the context uh, and set the context in, in two places. You know, maybe first your background and then second, uh, some of the background behind Paradigm, because both both backgrounds, I think, are, are fairly unique uh, in this space, right? So I was looking through uh, your LinkedIn profile, Charlie, and um, you've got a very interesting like background. And <laughs> you, you started as a research scientist at USC, and I think you're doing that during high school. Uh, then there's a, there's a point where you went to MIT, but you dropped out. Uh, then there's this gap of three years, which I'm going to assume, but hopefully you tell us that three-year period is where you maybe discovered uh, crypto. And then the resume sort of continues where you're a principal at Pantera Capital. Of course, we had Joey Krug on a few episodes ago. We'll include that in the show notes. And then in, I, I believe, 2018 or so, you became a partner at Paradigm, which for folks that don't know is, I think, one of... Um, one of the most interesting crypto funds that are out there, it's, it was co-founded by uh, yeah, the, the co-founder of Coinbase, Fred Arison. Uh, it's got some other notable names, great research coming out of it. And one notable thing, uh, one of many, is that Paradigm was actually one of the first funds, I believe, to raise from a major endowment. So in 2008, the Yale Endowment, that's a $29 billion fund, an institutional fund. You've heard the institutions are coming. Well, they came in 2018 and they invested in Paradigm. So that's a little bit of background from my perspective, but I, I want you, Charlie, to help uh, fill in the blanks, maybe maybe starting at the top. Uh, how did you go from research scientist at USC in, in high school to a uh, partner at Paradigm? So I might need to update the LinkedIn uh, and I might have taken a little liberty with research scientist on the title there. But I think at the time I was, I was like 13 um, and I was, I was in high school at that point um, working in uh, a lab at USC um, that was doing some interesting cryptography research related to um, some of the earlier SMPC protocols um, and first around them like SPDZ. But um, I actually was into crypto at that point. So when I was like 11, a few, a few years before, um, I was, you know, selling software on the internet, um, and made a PayPal account, uh, in my mom's name. And then at some point they requested her social security number. And she was like, there's absolutely no way that I'm giving this to you to go use on the internet. And so I started <laughs> using Bitcoin. Um, and for a couple of years, I just thought it was kind of incredible. Um, I mean, like at that point in my life, you know, it was like the only payment rail that I could actually use on the internet. Um, and eventually, um, I think in around like 2013, um, went from kind of a user casually interested, um, you know, mining on my own hardware kind of before the ASIC era, um, 
to getting really into the more theoretical and research side of it um, and wanting to understand sort of like the basis of these systems um, and then got further into that um, you know, through some early opportunities to do research, both related and unrelated to crypto, uh, cryptocurrency, cryptography. Um, and then once Ethereum came out, uh, I wanted actually to dive in full time, um, but decided to leave high school to go to MIT instead. Spent a year there, realized I was going to miss the boat if, um, if I didn't leave and decided to leave MIT to join um, Pantera along with Joey, who you guys had on. Um, it's a friend of mine. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the early origin story. All right. So, so we talk a lot about, um, the unbanked, right. In, in crypto in general, but, uh, I've got to, I got to be honest, Charlie, I've never thought about the unbanked preteens, right? Like the kids that are like between, I don't know, um, I guess eight or so when they start to get semi financially literate and, uh, 18 who actually are kind of locked out of the financial system. And you came at this. Um, because you were you were locked out of of PayPal essentially, and crypto was like the only lonely bank, I guess, the only finance, the only the only money you could really use at any level of scale. That's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of a wild series of coincidences, and I think like um, you know, many of the people in the space at this point, it is still so early that you kind of have to have a reason to be here, and I think. Um, most people have these kinds of backgrounds where it's just a really strange sequence of coincidences that led you to being, you know, deeply interested in internet money and programmable internet money. Uh, want to spend all your time on it. Um, but I got super lucky with that. And then I ended up at Pantera. I spent an awesome year there um, with Joey. And uh, and then in early 2018, um, I'd met Matt, who uh, I got in- introduced to, also did MIT undergrad. Um, and Fred at the time, um, Fred had left Coinbase the year before, um, spent a year thinking about what he wanted to do next. Um, him and Matt got together, um, and then pulled me in, um, in early 2018 and I decided to leave and go start something new with them. So what's also cool, I think Charlie is, um, we, I I think there are a lot of, uh, millennials of course, and, you know, uh, Gen X and, you know, maybe the odd boomers though, that, that listen uh, to bankless and and tune into the bankless nation. Uh, you are a representative of, of Gen Z, sort of this new generation. Do you think Gen Z is going to just grow up using crypto, just grow up crypto native, similar to, to the way the millennials maybe grew up with the internet and became digital natives? Um, I think it's very possible. Uh, I'm not sure that it's as much about crypto as it is about sort of not having learned bad habits around what money is uh, or could be. Um, But to be honest, at this point, I don't think that crypto is sort of like more millennial money than Venmo. Uh, I do think that we have the opportunity uh, with young people to... um, show them alternatives before they learn bad habits. And I think that a lot of the aversion to um, cryptocurrency, DeFi, um, kind of this whole space that you, know, you might see from uh, older folks more frequently than, than young is, is largely bad habits and kind of um, you know, ways of thinking that get reinforced over many years. Um, so I, I do think young people are really um, like, there's a reason (laughs) that the space is broadly really young. Um, But I'm not sure that it's so much 
millennials, you know, inherently love crypto as it's not as hard to convince them that this is just a much better experience than they could get anywhere else. And that should really be the North Star. So let's turn a little bit to Paradigm. Um, you guys made headlines when in 2018, you you got uh, raised $400 million. Um, one of those investors, as I mentioned, was um, the Yale Endowment. So the, the institutions definitely came. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of of Paradigm? So we, we've talked to uh, many folks on the show. Everyone has sort of their way of thinking about um, crypto, their paradigm, if you will, of crypto, right? Whether it's, you know, this is the internet of value or we'll, we're building Web3 and our goal is to decentralize Facebook. Or there's the fat protocol thesis, uh, which was, you know, famously came out in 2016 and 2017 was sort of a guiding theory. There are token maximalists we've talked to. There's people who believe in, in fat money that uh, reserve asset money systems will be sort of the kings of crypto. How would you describe Paradigm's thesis? So I think it's it's difficult to sort of encapsulate in a one-liner. Um, and there's certainly no lack of disagreement. You can just go watch us on Twitter um, or, you know, healthy debate internally. I think that, you know, at the highest level, there are a couple of core theses that we hold um, and, and are somewhat non-contentious. You know, in terms of public blockchains are very interesting. Um, they're a novel form of technology. The idea of crypto economic security um, is novel. And there's something fundamentally interesting about the intersection of um, money, finance, and technology in a much more natural way than we've seen, you know, in, on sort of the internet as it exists today. Um, beyond that, I think a lot of the sort of uh, more specific theses that have floated around and at different points, you know, risen to prominence or, or been kind of the meta of the space um, are probably too zoomed in to, to point out individually. But I don't know, one that we're probably quite well known for is, you know, the general belief that uh, futility token or utility tokens are futility tokens. I think you guys had a great <laughs> quote on this earlier. Um, and that, you know, ultimately the ability to create value, durable, long-term value, um, is sort of like the core maxim, um, that we should organize around. And, you know, to be honest, I think, especially with respect to, to DeFi and more of the frontier, that idea has taken longer to proliferate than I, I would have expected, but, um, I, I'm not sure that it's actually sort of uh an out there idea anymore which is really exciting so charlie a venture capital firm is composed of many different people each with their own you know unique ideas and i think when all those unique ideas come uh, and coalesce you generate like the thesis the generalized thesis of the firm but each individual person has their own thesis that may not uh that that may conflict or contrast with other members of uh, of the peers of, of a venture capital firm. So how do your specific beliefs contrast with your peers at Paradigm? Like, what do you believe as a thesis that uh, maybe other members at Paradigm don't that uh, disagree with? That's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll pick out one that, you know, we haven't been shy about publicly debating and say, I, I, I'm probably more concerned about the long-term security of um, existing protocols in particular Ethereum, but not specific to it, um, 
than some other folks on the team as as kind of an urgent issue um, that we'll be confronted with quite soon and not in 10 or 20 years. So I definitely want to pocket that one because that's that's the topic that we definitely want to go into. Uh, but on a grander scale, how how would um, what what are, are there any examples of just like generalized like attitudes towards you know what what is investable versus what's not like equity versus tokens um, that that is a constant com- like what are the constant themes of conversation and paradigm that that are frequently in debate? So I think that one um, and probably the like eternal debate is to what extent we can rely on reflexivity. Um, or rather kind of assume that uh, reflexivity will work out uh, rather than work against us. And I think that there's, there's many names that this idea goes by, um, circularity, um, self-reference, recurrence. I, I, I like reflexivity the best to describe it, but um, you know, the core idea is sort of just... Uh, is, is embodied today in, in DeFi and sort of how far um, different protocols are willing to push, um, for example, yield farming, very highly reflexive idea, um, or make the assumption uh, that they can sort of circularly support value or to what extent they can. Um, and at least personally, I, I've been very much on the side of not wanting to lean into sort of highly reflexive um Security assumptions mostly is how I would characterize them. Um, but at this point, I think those are the most interesting experiments that are getting run. Um, and, you know, I suspect that, like, it'll take a couple of years to figure out the set point, but it'll be very interesting to see what we can create. So a, a comment on that. Reflexivity, I think uh, our listeners might be more familiar with the term that me and Ryan use on, on this podcast, which is memes. Uh, reflexivity is like a meme, right? <laughs> Where and, and Bitcoin at its uh, at its core is like a reflexive asset where there's a little bit of game theory involved where like, you know, if everyone else buys Bitcoin, like you better also be buying Bitcoin, right? And so do you, do you believe that at the core of these things, there is a reflexive component that is a part of the fundamentals of these systems? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think we'll get into this more later in the podcast, but I would say with absolutely 100%, and I don't think it's it's debatable, actually. Um, but I, I actually meant on a more micro level, um, when you get beyond sort of these core layer one protocols, which um, I think are in some ways substantively different from, for example, applications built on top of Ethereum, um, or rather distinct from them, um, that sort of the amount of reflexivity that we have to uh, we have to lean into for these things to exist in the first place or are comfortable leaning into um, is quite different. And so I think, you know, the simplest example of this would be Ethereum miners are paid in Ether. Um, it's entirely circular. The cash flows are denominated in the thing itself. Um, would we be willing to sort of accept the same maxim for a DeFi protocol Um which earns cash flows in terms of itself, or perhaps is lending pr- protocol collateralized um, by by its own asset. And we could get into kind of like um, the notions of like you know moneyness versus equityness, um, the differences between uh, monetary premiums and cash flow valuation. I suspect we will, but that's I think kind of like the 
that's a very abstract debate that has been playing out for years and I expect will continue to play out for a couple more. And I think like one of the most interesting areas of the space to watch right now. I, I would imagine that this debate that you're talking about is is one of the many debates that the, all the partners and the members of Paradigm have. And so when you guys are debating about subjects like this, like going back and forth, sharpening each other's uh, sticks, trying to get a grasp on the understanding of things, like over time, how does that debate like uh, evolve inside the firm? And like, because at some point, like action needs to be taken as a result of like the opinions formed in a debate. So like, how do how does Paradigm go from like debate to action? Like what, the, what does that process look like? It's a great question. Um, I think <laughs> one feature that uh, we only started to notice more recently um, in discussing some of these ideas more externally is how much uh, we develop like an internal nomenclature that's almost inscrutable to anyone else. And then when you start tweeting about it, uh, you spend as much time clarifying what you mean uh, as making the point that you want to. Um <laughs> And which gets us into trouble. Um, but, you know, in terms of like forming an investment lens, right? Um, I think diversity of opinion is critical. Um, but more than just diversity of opinion, sort of like op- uh, open mindedness, infinite open mindedness, and a willingness to sort of consider that, you know, the shared investment lens that, that we arrive at as a team um, is going to be. Um, more considered than, you know, any one individual's opinion. Um, and in an in iterated game sense, um, you know, a willingness on the part of the individual to believe that we actually should act as a group. Um, basically that um, even if, you know, our shared investment lens might not agree entirely with my own personal views, um, that I'm always willing to um, extend the benefit of the doubt to my partners and colleagues that over time, um, where I'm wrong, you know, they'll help make sure that we don't make the wrong decision. So, so Charlie, just talking a little bit more about investor education. And by the way, we're, we're just talking about yams just now. So if, you know, if <laughs> listeners are totally unfamiliar with what the heck we're talking about, uh, go check out stay the nation. I think episode nine, uh, it came out by the time you're listening to this, it, it will have come out last week where, where David and I try to make sense of what the heck yams are. So uh, you can get caught up on that a little bit. But so it appears to me like you guys, Paradigm put out a report called Bitcoin for the Open-Minded Skeptic. Um, and that's not a report for the crypto native, right? It's mostly review for uh, people like us. But it, it seems to me to be the case that Bitcoin is almost like the uh, the Bitcoin the, the the gateway drug, right? For institutions getting into crypto, like it's 2020 now, and they're finally starting to become comfortable with Bitcoin as a store of value asset, as like a digital gold, as like something that's not just for criminals. Um, would you say that's the case? Like Bitcoin is the is the the gateway drug, if you will, and then from that, uh, institutions will will start to get interested in other areas in crypto? Yeah, I think that's generally true. It's certainly the most legible narrative, right? The one that as of right now um, has been around the longest, sort of has the most both, I think, uh, has the most social credibility, just to be frank, right? And in many ways is the easiest for a new entrant to the space to underwrite, especially, um, you know, one working at, uh, sort of a long-term um, institution or investment partnership. Um, 
And yeah, the, the Bitcoin thesis, my partner Matt Huang wrote it. I think it's a fantastic synthesis of many of the ideas that have brought new folks from those areas into the space um, and probably the most legible narrative um, to them today. And uh, I do think that, you know, once you're here, once you're kind of willing to make the leap of faith, <laughs> you pretty quickly recognize how interesting the rest of the space is. Um, some folks decide to dive head first. Some just decide not to um, write off kind of everything, everything else or the space as a whole. Um, but I think that from any perspective, it's just hugely net positive to see even the Bitcoin narrative alone becoming more legible and credible to a much broader group. So there was this uh, meme, this narrative going around in 2018, the institutions are coming, right? Um, that was like the beginning of 2018 uh, on the back of, um, on the, on the tail end of the, of the bull market. Um, I, I maybe want to ask uh, you what you think about, like, are the institutions coming? Because it, it, it sort of didn't pan out the way the hype uh, said it would in, in 2018. Although, you guys managed to raise from uh, some pretty large institutions in 2018. Now we're in 2020. Yeah. Are, like, are so, the institutions coming or have they been coming all along? I think they've been coming all along. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it would be unfair to say that the narrative that institutions were coming didn't pan out <laughs> the way that some of us might have hoped. Um, but I don't think it's the case that they're averse to it or there was some binary event that broadly flipped people that uh, were or could have been positive negative we just realized that some things take time um, and i think that we have seen a slow uh, maybe slower than we would have hoped but steady drip of folks coming into the space um you know from traditional institutions um and i expect this to continue personally. Um, and, you know, if I, I think my main takeaway from kind of having observed this process over the last few years in particular, is that this is going to be a multi-decade game. Um, and every time it feels like we found the thing or the narrative that will be legible or what will be kind of like, you know, what will define crypto's legacy or this era of crypto's legacy, we found out that it's probably going to take longer than we thought. Um, and, and I think, I think that's just like pretty much broadly true of everything in the space. So Charlie, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about tokens and then get it, kind of get into more, uh, current uh, DeFi protocols, DeFi topics, but I want to first start with the progression of tokens as we've come to know them, right? So 2017 was kind of more or less like the birth of Ethereum to the rest of the world, like Ethereum 2015, 2016, we didn't really know. No, the world didn't really know what it was or what it was going to do. In 2017, we kind of started to figure it out because we realized that the ERC-20 token standard could be pretty uh, interesting depending on what you do. And that was like the birth of utility tokens, which we've called like futility tokens. <laughs> so uh, futility tokens, like they sucked then, uh, are, do they still suck? And what kind of like progression have you seen in the, the concept of tokens uh, that really makes you optimistic or, or perhaps less so? So I think that 
futility tokens will always be futile, you know. Uh, I think Vitalik wrote the defining blog post on this in like October 2017, if I remember correctly, and we didn't listen to him. I think more people are listening to him now. Um, <laughs> you know, tokens that, that give ownership to decentralized protocols are, I think, wildly interesting. Um, there's many different facets to them. You know, your ability to participate in governance uh, is a feature of some. Others are really just strictly ownership in an, ec- an economic margin that the protocol can extract by virtue of adding value to the world, the ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. Um, now, I think that you know, to the specific question of futility tokens, it's kind of unfortunate that the economic model was just like so bad in 2017, to be honest. Uh, and it felt like, you know, talking about sort of real protocol cash flows uh, was more or less shouting into the void. I certainly don't feel that way now. I think that that's kind of just become implicitly or just very slowly uh, kind of like the shared perspective of everybody in the space, or at least that's been my kind of observation in DeFi. And that's super encouraging because, you know, for a new founder, um, really anyone that wants to start something in the space, it's really important that sort of the standards as to like, what should you be pursuing are, you know, at least not futile to your earlier point. And, and if there is like anything in hindsight that I'm disappointed, uh, you know, about with respect to 2017, it's that there were probably some really great teams and ideas that just kind of shot themselves in the foot. Um, And I hope that doesn't continue to happen. So since 2017, there's been a lot of iterations and innovation behind token designs over the last three years. Uh, What innovations have you seen that really make you, um, that that turn something like a futility token into an investable asset? The turn a futility token into an investable asset. It's a pretty specific lens on it. Um, I think just generally. Not not necessarily, sorry, just to clarify, but not necessarily thinking of like futility tokens. And, and I think maybe it's helpful to define futility tokens really quick. To me, I define futility tokens as something that suffers like the velocity problem, where it's right. just like a medium of exchange. It's just, it's just a, not an a inferior value. form of money in one specific right. use case. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 like you spin up a a candy store and then you print a token and say, okay, pay me in this token, and that's that's right. But you token. only get the token by exchanging other currencies for it, and the market for your candy right. shops, uh, you know, currency pro- probably is not super highly liquid. So, um, right. Oh, I mean, that's called, kind of yeah. like so the core. Somebody... That that's kind of the core problem, right? Like, it, that's just not a workable economic model. It's not conducive to success. There, regardless of how successful your candy store is, it doesn't really matter for the currency because it it's probably unlikely that people are going to be willing to grant that a candy store's proprietary currency becomes a global currency competitive with like Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, it just it's. It's unfortunate. This um, is the this is the reason we don't denominate money and settle debts in Chuck E. Cheese tokens. It's right there. I mean, like yeah. you can use I it. I do in Chuck actually e. think if you if you Twitter search me like at Charlie Noise Chuck E. Cheese tokens, I have. <laughs> uh, there are a couple of tweets. Do you know I still have a few? 
So uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're still good, but from my childhood in my coin collection, I'll, uh, I should check on that. Maybe they've appreciated in value. Yeah. Um, so, so as an economic model, like we've basically totally scrapped futility tokens. Like no one's making a, a token like this anymore. Uh, so between 2017, 2018, when we thought that they were all the rage and now uh, where we understand that they are bad, what specific innovations have you seen come to replace um, the futilityness of tokens in DeFi? Yeah, so I think basically the two dimensions are one, real protocol earnings and two, um, flexibility. So... To the former point, I think MakerDAO and Augur pioneered the idea um, that you know a, de- a decentralized trustless protocol could generate earnings, um, or rather a cash flow stream in the way that it adds value to the world. Right? Um, basically, like not not really dissimilar to um, any other traditional company, except again they're trustless, you know, decentralized protocols. So of course it's like could not be more dissimilar in practice. Um, but I, I think that was like the first, they were the first kind of uh, like fundamental innovations on this dimension, how it should be done, how you could think about, uh, how you could think about that as, you know, tokens being sort of the discounted future value of protocol earnings. Um, and that's basically through osmosis, enter the rest of the space. Um, and, and that's how people think about designing tokens today. And that's awesome. Um, the second dimension that is different, I think, are is the flexibility dimension. So especially more recent experiments like YFI is a great example, um, are you know certainly not taking like a bad or fundamentally incorrect economic model to a static idea. They're taking uh, like a credible economic model uh, to kind of an undefined um, idea with hypothetically a lot of future flexibility. Now, like as to whether, you know, any specific one of these efforts will evolve into um, something real and meaningful, you know, that can, that builds and and can extract durable value. I think that's an open question. Um, But the idea that we have a good enough idea of what we should be shooting for to evolve towards it, rather than sort of starting with this like very static idea for what you're going to do, which like 2017 white papers, basically, it's like throw your idea down on the table and never change it is, I think, quite important. Um, Because inflexibility is potentially as um, kind of harmful to progress as bad economic models. By the way, guys, Charlie mentioned YFI token. If you haven't, check out episode 25 where we talk with Andre. And uh, I finally figure out what YFI token actually is and what it what it does. It's a great episode on that. Um, uh, I guess, Charlie, you know what would be interesting, I think, is I, I'm assuming that neither you nor, nor Paradigm would say that everything happening in DeFi is good and investable. Um, right. That's kind of your job to figure this out for, um, like for people, for investors. Right. I mean, I think to the earlier point, they are separable dimensions. Like something can be good and not investable or not good. Uh, well, something that's not good is probably not investable, but good is kind of separate from investable. And I think that's, um, 
that's important to keep in mind. Ooh, when... okay. So let's talk about that lens. Let's use the lens of investable. Well, uh, we go through some, I guess, categories. And maybe we'll start with the um, investable and good, right? Like uh, good investments, I suppose, or th- things that you guys are betting on or you personally are betting on as you're speaking on behalf of maybe your personal opinions here. Um, and maybe we can go through some of the things that uh, are public that Paradigm has invested in. Most notable, at least to me, is probably uh, Uniswap, which uh, listeners will know is a liquidity robot automated market maker that we've talked about a whole bunch on Bankless. Why is Uniswap a good investment? What was the thesis behind Uniswap? Yeah, so I think Uniswap is built on a fundamentally interesting idea, concept, the X times Y equals K or constant function market maker. Um, And the team going after it is incredible and very long-term oriented and the very high level way that we think that we thought about it think about it and really you know would say it's kind of the definition of investable is incredibly able to build long-term value um in uniswap's case i think you know there is you can imagine a future in which um the innovation i think we're already seeing this play out to some extent um makes it so easy to create markets that we can run more experiments that allow us to create more markets, run more experiments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that it's uh, almost in some sense a platform, um, an economic platform, as opposed to an individual product. So what's crazy about Uniswap is I, I saw just on the last week's seven-day volume, uh, if you annualize that, it was something like $36 billion in annualized volume that they're doing now. Are you like, is that surprising to you? Those kinds of numbers? I, I did not think we would be anywhere near where we are today for the next year. I thought it would take a lot longer. Definitely. It's been, why, why has it not like, why has it been so fast? It's a very, (laughs) it's an interesting question. Um, you ask a hundred people, you're going to get a hundred different opinions. I think, At the heart of it, people realized how interesting DeFi is and that it allows you to run experiments uh, on a pretty large scale really quickly um, and iterate quite quickly. It's kind of funny to say, considering that you know one of our biggest concerns is also the difficulty of writing Solidity and getting your contracts audited and the deployment cycle being uh, so much less iterative than traditional software development. But from a financial perspective, you know, the speed of, of iteration, composition, uh, like remixing and remastering of all of these different protocols and products is just unbelievable. And I think that, you know, at its core, that's really what's driving um, this kind of growth. Hey guys, going bankless is a journey and you don't have to do it alone. So here are some fantastic bankless tools from the sponsors that make this show possible. As we all go westward, we need to get our values into the crypto world, but hopefully escape the tyranny of centralized rent-seeking institutions. And that's where Monolith can help you get your value into the crypto world while skipping over the crypto banks. Monolith, coming soon to Monolith, is an on-ramp directly from your old world bank account into your smart contract wallet on Ethereum. 
And for those that don't know, Monolith also has a DeFi card, which uses DAI in your smart contract wallet, but on the Visa network. So you can go to the, your grocery store, swipe your DeFi card, pay for your groceries like a normal person, and still be part of the crypto bankless, crypto economic future that we are all excited about. So you can get your value from your bank account directly into your crypto Visa card without having to go through any crypto bank intermediary, which is just absolutely fantastic. So in order to get started, go to monolith.xyz and get your bankless Visa card today. I want to tell you about another bankless tool that I personally use. It's fantastic. This one is for our US listeners. It's called Rocket Dollar. So if you have an IRA or a 401k, the problem is it's jailed inside of your brokerage. So your Fidelity account, your Schwab account, that means you don't have good access to crypto. The only crypto that you can buy is in a trust form and it's marked up like 5x, 6x, 8x the price you're getting ripped off. So what you need to do is break your retirement account out of jail, set up something called a self-directed IRA or a self-directed 401k. We've written articles about this on Bankless that we'll include in the show notes. Rocket Dollar takes care of all of the pain in getting set up. They help you with the paperwork. You can break your retirement account out of jail and also use the Bankless code to get $50 off. So make sure you use that code Bankless when you sign up on rocketdollar.com to get $50 off. Charlie, I want to I want to wrap uh, the Uniswap conversation on a bow with this last question. Uh, you talked about a potential, you know, uh, gaining upside uh, exposure to Uniswap via a fee via into the protocol. Uh, but we've seen people love Uniswap and also love these like uh, def- new new, new uh, liquidity mining yield farming DeFi protocols based on their credible neutrality, right? So like mm-hmm. Uniswap has a fee that goes to the liquidity providers, not the team, right? And then you know the the YFI token is you know fair launch, no VC founders reward, and so uh, what as a fee model or some value capture model for Uniswap as a mechanism for upside exposure to the protocol seems to get in the way of uh, it also being a credibly neutral protocol. Do you also see this problem or, or am I overlooking? Something? I see the tension, certainly. Um, I think it's an unavoidable tension. And that's why you know the, I throw the fee out quite hypothetically. I don't know if that will be the mechanism of value capture. Um, and I think it's important to remember here that Uniswap as it currently exists no one's going to force you to move. Um, no one can force you to move, us or the team. And to the extent that this, uh, that that kind of value capture or any other is unacceptable to the community, they won't move or they will fork the protocol. Um, and so I think there is both voice and exit um, in that dynamic. Now, that being said, you know, does a fee erode the credible neutrality of the protocol? I don't think so. There's any kind of value capture mechanism. I don't think so. I think we need to figure out a sustainable way of funding these things. And the clearest answer is for their earnings to be directly tied to the value that they create. Again, you know, to the extent that users don't want to pay it or it's not the best venue, they'll go elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a tough question to answer and one that I think um, we're everybody is going to bump into. Um, I'm not sure what it looks like long term, but you know, I believe wholeheartedly that 
we need to figure out sustainable funding for the application layer. And I believe that that probably looks like protocol fees in some form broadly, um, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's an alternative. So Charlie, it tends to be the case where sometimes first movers win, right? And sometimes it's the second uh, winners who win, right? It's not Yahoo. It's kind of Google who sort of solves it. Another interesting category I'm curious your thoughts on is uh, the decentralized stablecoin category. So um, all of us love DAI, right? Um, Like a pioneer, um, you know, four or five years in the making really set the DeFi market off. Um, But you guys have recently invested in a, I guess, a DAI alternative or DAI complement. Certainly another stable-ish value protocol called Rye if I'm pronouncing that yep. cor- correctly, through Reflexor Labs. Mm-hmm. Do you think a second mover can win here? And what's sort of the thesis for Rye? Sure. So before answering, I do think it's important to point out, you know, we, we led um, the most recent sale uh, by the Maker Foundation um, of MKR tokens, as well as underwrote um, the majority of the toxic credit, credit auction that took place uh, after Black Thursday for MKR. So, you know, we have been uh, for years supporters of Maker and continue to be. Um, that being said, I do think that Reflexor is pursuing an alternative path. Rise, of course, most comparable to DAI. Um, but the way that we think about it is as offering an alternative to DAI that does not rely as much on governance that is not pegged to $1, which um, you know, is a core maxim that maker governance is uh, trying to maintain. Um, and I think as maker continues to grow, some ideas on the roadmap are going to be controversial with some uh, factions of the community. Specifically, I think real world assets is you know, one of the, the most obvious. Um, and even today, you're starting to see some, um, I think, version two, uh, USDC and WBTC, et cetera, being included in the protocol. Um, you know, I, I think Maker has a very bright future. I also think that there, are, that there is room for experimentation um, and that those dimensions are important to give users choice along and that Rise approach of, you know, baking uh, an interest rate directly into the price of the asset, taking only Ether collateral, and minimizing governance uh, is a very interesting alternative. So how would that fit into the DeFi universe that we know today? Uh, and then also as DeFi develops, how, how do you think as a building block, how do you think that fits into the future of, of DeFi? Well, it's a very different user experience, right? Um, so Rye is a dollar stable asset. Um, but it is not a dollar equivalent asset, meaning the peg of Rye will change every minute or however frequently they update um, their basically target rate feedback mechanism. Um, So I think that the answer to your question or how I imagine playing this out, this playing out is that Rye probably is a better fit for more financial use cases than DAI um, in some respects, which is, you know, as collateral for some other derivative, um, 
it's not really important, most likely to the owner of that or the protocol that uh, that implements it, that die remain equal to one dollar, um, or rather that rye does. It's it's actually probably preferable that it have sort of minimal um, dollar purchasing power volatility from like a financial mathematics perspective. You know, in terms of what's what's ideal for that use case. On the flip side, it's probably not uh, great UX, and something that maker governance has been very averse to is taking die off of its one dollar peg. Um, to implement a negative interest rate. Like to the extent that die in your wallet, a hundred die is floating. And, you know, next week is one die is 98, uh, like 98 cents and like will be forever rather than a dollar. Um, it's a very different UX. And I think that's probably the core dimension along which they're going to kind of differentiate. So speaking of things that track a dollar, but don't actually uh, act as a dollar. Ampleforth has kind of taken this uh, the, the world by storm recently because of its insane run-up from an $8 million market cap to a $600 million market cap down to a $200 million market cap. And and Charlie, you tweeted something as Ampleforth was retracing from this <laughs> insane run-up. Uh, it, it was a, a screenshot of the price of Ampleforth with a big red negative 40%. And you quoted it saying, nature is healing. Uh, and so can you go into your perceptions on Ampleforth and perhaps uh, why you per maybe alluded to that it shouldn't really be worth all that much? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Ampleforth can be worth whatever people want it to be. Um, and I could be wrong about this in the same sense that, uh, you know, it's true of Ether or Bitcoin. I think the reason I tweeted that was, you know, Ampleforth is an accounting trick right? Um, the price uh, remaining $1 while, ba while balances change uh, in perfect proportion to that is really just flipping price and supply. So whereas, um, you know, most assets have a variable price and uh, a fixed supply or rather one that doesn't depend uh, on maintaining a constant market price, Ampleforth does the opposite, which is expands or contracts the supply to maintain a constant dollar price. But what this doesn't change is the market cap over time. So, um, I, you know, I don't mean this in uh, kind of a condescending sense, but Ampleforth is an accounting trick, right? And I think uh, something that concerned me was that it seemed like there were a lot of people that didn't understand this. Um, and I think that Although it's very interesting to see kind of like how the market treats this asset, um, there's a difference between people playing money games because they're fun and they understand what they're doing and thinking that there is like like something else is happening, for example, with Ampleforth. Okay, so a uh, brother, a cousin of Ampleforth is this new uh, YAMS token asset, right? So it's the same thing as Ampleforth, very similar. We've gotten into the subtleties earlier, but the distribution is different. So instead of um, VCs owning it and founders owning it in pre-sale, it's basically uh, DeFi uh, individuals, individuals that are in DeFi, particularly, you know, I mean, let's be honest, the whales who have the capital to, to put in and start receiving yams. <laughs> is that any different to you? Does that have a better shot at becoming money? I mean, no, definitely not. But my hope is that this might not be true. Yams is more ironic than it is misleading. Um, 
And I think there's nothing wrong with running fun experiments because everybody's going to meme them because they're hilarious experiments. Um, I mean, I think, well, I don't want to say there's nothing wrong with that. Rather, uh, I think about that quite differently than the idea that we would say, for example, Ampleforth is going to take over the global financial system because there's like, uh, I don't know, there's something different than an accounting trick is happening. Um, so to your question on EMs, like, do I think it's, it's any more likely to like become a viable form of money than Ampleforth? Like, not really, but in some sense, I think it's probably better that people are treating it like, like a highly reflexive money game than, um, then it seems like people are being misled about it. But, you know, obviously you kind of have to pick where you draw that line for yourself. So so we started this out, Charlie, by talking about like uh, some of the good things you see in DeFi and some of the, you know, investments uh, rather than some of the bad things or bad investments. Um, what's your take just in general on yield farming? Is mm-hmm. that good for DeFi? Is that a kind of a like something that's investable? I think yield farming is broadly just an incredible innovation. Um, an incredible idea that's going to be around forever. Um, and you know, I, I was quite negative on it, uh, or have been publicly, especially on Twitter. Um, because I think that, you know, yield farming as an idea is different than sort of its implementation in any specific context or protocol. Um, and in the same way that like, you know, 3% per year ether inflation is far different than 100,000%, despite the fact that if you take the limit, you know, to infinity, they're equivalent. Um, Like, there's sort of a similar idea here in yield farming, where like, it's, there's no bright objective line between what I would say, like, kind of seems somewhat reasonable, and what doesn't. Um, But any individual implementation of it, again, you kind of have to pick how credible you find it for yourself, if that makes sense. Um, I guess in short, I would say it's a great idea. I think it's uh, it's going to be super important to the future of the space and it's not going to go away. I think that it will take a while for people generally to figure out like how to use it in an additive, you know, long-term sustainable way um, to build durable value. And that a couple of the use cases or implementations today um, do seem, you know, kind of at odds with that, with that long-term thinking. So Charlie, earlier in this conversation, uh, we, we said we would get back to this and, and now's the time. Um, Cause I think it's a really interesting discussion and perspective you have on I think maybe um, two aspects. Uh, one is when we're talking about base layers like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, um, economic security is imperative. And uh, you also, you talked about re- reflexivity and the hazards of, I guess, betting the farm, betting the base layer on reflexivity. And an- another term for that that we've used often on bank lists is like the moneyness of mm. a given underlying layer um, you know, layer I strongly agree with that for what it's worth. Okay. I think that they're essentially the same thing. So let's talk um, about that. And in fact, that there's like a concrete reason that they must be the same thing. Okay. So that's what I want to dig into. And, but while, while we dig into that, let, let me just, you know, tee this up. 
for listeners so they understand. This is, uh, by the way, an ongoing conversation I feel like you and I have had over the years on, on Twitter. Um, this is the first time we're doing a podcast about it. But the the basic problem, if I could state the problem, and then maybe you could um, you know iterate on what the problem is, is the value of, let, let's take Ether, for example. The same is true of, of Bitcoin. The value of Ether um, has to go higher in proportion to for, for economic security uh, reasons. So the value of, of Ether is basically the, the economic security of the network. And the, the question is, or a question is, what happens if the value of all of the tokens on top of Ethereum starts to far exceed and outstrip the value of Ether? Um, does Ethereum become unable to secure uh, the tokens on on top of this, and I think there's a lot of implications that fall out of that. The one implication is on Ethereum, there could be things such as free rider tokens that um, consume the economic security bandwidth of Ethereum, but but don't really pay it forward. Um, another implication is that there's some scalability limit on Ethereum, and you know that's in proportion to a concept we've called economic bandwidth. That you know the the Ethereum token economy can't far exceed the value of of Ether, or else. Uh, the network becomes insecure. And yeah. I, I think the last maybe implication that we could dig into is, um, doesn't this mean that Ether must accrue monetary premium in order to be a global financial system? So is that kind of the problem statement? Would you add to, to maybe the problem statement or how would you talk about this? I think it's a great problem statement. And you know, I think this is such a tough uh, issue, kind of deeply entangled in so many different like highly illegible and frontier ideas today that it's it's really really hard to talk about honestly um so but i would say yeah i think at a high level that's that's a really good problem statement um and then you know i think one immediate reaction to the way that you would put it um you know one hypothetical or pathological case maybe being the value of all tokens on top of ethereum um vastly exceeding the value of ether um or the security premium that it can pay, um, is is that that's kind of a binary question, right? It's kind of uh, it it can sound like we're asking, well, will at some point, you know, will there be a big double spend on these assets on top of the chain? And and it just feels very like maybe this could happen, but you know, are we ever going to get there? It's kind of a threshold. Like maybe people just won't do it. In the same way that on Bitcoin. Like you would expect to see selfish mining, but you don't in practice. Um, does that kind of make sense? The the yeah, issue, yeah. Or like yeah. so, what one way I think of it is like um, the U.S. has um, the, the strongest military in the world. I think you know most most people would uh, agree with that. Um, other nation states um, are up and coming, um, but how much is enough to pay for U.S. military defense? Is it 1% right. of GDP? Is it 5% of GDP? Well, you don't know until you're attacked. So Absolutely. It's, you don't know until you're attacked. That's that's the the exact, I think, issue that many people take with the, the kind of high-level framing that you laid out, which, again, I totally agree with. But um, I think you know something that only became uh, apparent more recently is that uh, I don't believe it's a binary question, i.e., when do you get attacked? Um rather that um, it's ongoing and the um, like today we can see empirically that uh, MEV is driving um, 
at least socially undesirable um, kind of things to happen. Can you talk uh, about landing gas fees? MEV for folks that aren't familiar yeah. with what that is. So I, maybe it'd be helpful to zoom out right on like two the two kind of ideas that I personally consider core to um, this platform security question, right? Um, and the first is a paper uh, written by some folks at Princeton um, called uh, On the Instability of Bitcoin Without the Block Subsidy. Um, and it's a fantastic paper. It's, it's worth reading. Um, but the core idea contained within it is that um, transaction fees are not additive to security. Um, and actually, more specifically, any transaction fees which are proportional to the value of transactions are not additive to security. So in the context of Ethereum, um, a good ex- like all current gas fees are not cannot be assumed additive to the security budget. An example of a fee that could be is a constant amount of ether burned. Um, but we can get to that later. Um, so that's the, that's the first uh, very key idea. Can you just um, explain briefly why not? Because that's the entire thesis of of Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin security model transitions to uh, transaction fees only. So. Yeah, the rough answer is that transaction fees, non-constant transaction fees, those uh, which are proportional to value, which is true of Bitcoin uh, transaction fees today, Ethereum gas, like, um, are create minor extractable value inherently. Um, and so that's the second kind of key idea um, behind this broad security question. What is minor extractable value? It comes from, or is first defined in a paper, a fantastic paper by Phil Diane called Flash Boys 2.0. Um, and what it looked at was the uh, DEX transactions, uh, how bots front run them. Um, and specifically, it looked at application, uh, it looked at application behavior, um, which created opportunities for transaction ordering to net a profit, meaning, you know, uh, if I can be the first one to get a liquidation in, um, I can make uh, money doing that. Or if I can front run someone's trade on Uniswap, I can make money doing that. And they looked in this paper at empirically, there are arbitrage bots um, that do this, which are not miners. Um, But the point that they made in the paper was that actually, this value is entirely extractable by miners, meaning um, rather than these arbitrage bots uh, bidding on transaction fees to try and, you know, get priority or try and get the ordering that they want so that they can front run you or liquidate you or whatever, um, that actually what miners should be doing is simply censoring all of those transactions and extracting the value themselves. Um, And so, you get into a system where either you expect minor censorship or um, such that there are zero transaction fees, or if they are not the ones extracting the value themselves, then there is a very strong incentive uh, to uh, revert the chain, basically for consensus to become unstable because some blocks are uh, wealthier than others. Yeah, so to, to reiterate that, 
there, and we can really see this with a lot of the liquidity mining that's going on in DeFi, there's a ton of volume going through Uniswap. And sometimes we see blocks that have, you know, 5, 10, 20 Ether being paid as a fee. And it's in the miner's best interest if there's a, a 20 Ether fee block that only has two Ether issued as a reward. And so the discrepancy between the fee and the reward is so large that for the next to revert the next block, right? Uh, the next like five, ten blocks. Yeah. There's an incentive for miners to you know uh, reorg the next twenty yeah. blocks to go backwards to mine that twenty ETH reward fee, so they can take that from themselves. Is it this is right? Right. That's that's sort of a very pathological right um, case. So it, it, that kind of attack is what Phil Diane calls a time bandit attack in the paper, which is basically. Uh, it's not just the current block that you're in um, and how transaction ordering within it um, you know, impacts the amount of value you can derive uh, as a miner uh, from you know, publishing it, but that in fact it creates an incentive basically for consensus to become unstable because you would rather, to your point, reorg the chain than continue extending it. So what implications fall out from this, Charlie? So, yeah, to take it back to the earlier point on transaction fees, right? Like a very core idea, and in fact, one that Vitalik has, uh, especially recently, um, been quite vocal about in public, is the notion that uh, transaction fees, as we currently think about them, are not additive to security. Um, In fact, they're at best not additive, and at worst, create... MEV and an incentive to revert the chain, um, sort of big enough that it actually starts to happen in practice. Um, and so, you know, in the case of Ethereum, I think the, the kind of net vision for the future that I take away from this is, uh, either has to be money. Right. Um, and, and that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the base case that uh, that needs to happen for this thing to be secure. And it's the same argument as in Bitcoin. So that was kind of a poor way of stating it. Um, but rather, I think... So I think, the, sorry, I, I think the path that you got there is interesting. I want to come back to, to Ether has to be money in just a second. But, but also you mentioned Vitalik and sort of um, the transaction fees not being enough. Is, are you bullish on EIP-1559, sort of the burn mechanism is is that necessary to prevent mev yeah so that very uh interesting um question eip 1559 does not prevent mev um so what eip 1559 does do and i'm super positive on it is that it creates a base rate fee that all transactions pay Um, and this fee is burned a fee is the wrong word it creates a base burn um, and that burn doesn't accrue to um, uh, miners, right? So that's awesome. Um, where earlier I had said proportional to value fees are not additive to security because they are MEV, EIP-1559 base fees are additive to security. Um, you can invert the previous logic to say they're not proportional to transaction value, and therefore they can be additive to security. Does that make sense? I, th- um, I think I've got it. So 
Now, does uh, EIP-1559 get rid of MEV? No, um, because there are still TIP auctions in it, which are basically the same kinds of priority gas auctions as all transactions participate in today. And so even after EIP-1559, to the extent that any individual transaction has, um, you know, creates an arbitrage opportunity, you would expect there to be a TIP auction in exactly the same way as there is a, a, you know, priority gas auction uh, bidding today over it. And so, and you need that to establish priority um, either in times of congestion or just when a transaction contains MEV. So the point here is uh, any transaction which today bots get into a bidding war over the ordering of, you would expect that still to happen after EIP-1559 is implemented. However, it does, uh, for transactions where that's not true, it's a very good thing that rather that they burn the base fee rather than paying um, a transaction fee. Got it. So and so, how how about validators? So uh, proof of stake, rather. So that that basically means that the the miner and the holder of the ETH become one and the same. I would think that would give the holder of the ETH. Uh, longer time preference, let's say. We don't want to start right. front-running everyone or that destroys the value of Ethereum and my Ether. So we don't want to do that. Whereas in, in Bitcoin with proof of work, like the, the ASICs are a separate token, if you want to think about it that Definitely. way. Definitely. So I think it might be helpful first to like take a step back and consider the same question in the context of proof of work. This is something that Brian and I have talked about on Twitter before. Um, and, you know, what I said about EIP-1559, that you would still expect to see auctions happen for transactions which contain MEV afterwards, right, um, is not actually precisely true. Um, you would expect that to happen unless miners start extracting uh, value from them, right, rather than arbitragers participating in uh, or bidding in gas wars over them that miners simply censor those competing transactions and extract all of the value themselves, right? Which is completely separate to EIP-1559 or any other fee question. So does that kind of make sense? It's like there's, to the extent that miners are just running the default geth implementation and miner config, like they're not going to do this. And so far today, uh, up until today, they haven't. Um, and that's why arbitragers get into gas wars. But if miners decided to start extracting it themselves, well, there wouldn't be any gas wars because they would simply censor any competing transaction and order it however they want. Yeah, I totally, Does that make sense? I totally get it for proof of work. And then, yeah, for so proof of stake, actually uh, the same logic holds, which is uh, an individual validator determines transaction ordering within a block. Um, and so they can choose to do this. Um, in exactly the same way. Um, what does become more difficult are time banded attacks, at least beyond the finality window. Um, and so I think, you know, there's enough uncertainty around what proof of stake will look like in, in ETH 2.0 for, for me to comment on sort of like, or, you know, imagine that I have a perfect vision for how all of these concepts translate. Um, but at a minimum, the potential for uh, you know the incentive to for validators block proposers to censor transactions uh, still exists and will still be a problem. 
And, and the bear case for this is that the stakers who are staking ETH who participate in this, uh, you know, MEV, uh, MEV uh, capture, are it's it, the game theory is that you know any staker that doesn't do this loses to the stakers that do right and so the the value and in fact the losses compound over time and the losses compound over yeah. time right and so like while proof of stake advocates are concerned about um mining centralization in in proof of work mines uh, the the miners or the proof of work advocates are are concerned about capital uh centralization in proof of stake and and this, uh, the the activities de- being described here where some stakers will be able to extract, um, extract, capture the MEV and some stakers won't, definitely is concerning when it comes to a decentralization perspective. Is this right? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so to my earlier point that this is something Vitalik has been talking about a lot, I think um, I can show you guys the links afterwards to include, but he has some great comments uh, <laughs> deep in Twitter replies and on a couple of uh, Medium posts about um, potential solutions. And I think something that, that people are not broadly aware of is like how bad this problem could be in the sense that the solutions, at least those that we currently imagine, are like kind of a radical departure from what Ethereum looks like today. Um, and, you know, it, it's... Um, so I think the point here is both that this is kind of becoming more and more of an urgent problem and like the solutions, um, you know, some combination of proof of stake and everything going on to rollups, which I can get into more, uh, are like a very kind of radical departure from what Ethereum currently looks like. And especially considering the timeline to ETH 2.0 or how long like it seems like, at least to me, it will probably take uh, the DeFi ecosystem to migrate. Like, I, I think this is the problem that anybody who wants to the- wants to see Ethereum succeed long term should like be concerned about. So, Charlie, is it not? So, I feel like it's also a problem for Bitcoin, though. Except one difference is it's an it's a largely unacknowledged problem. Right, so Bitcoin. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so like I'm definitely gonna get, I, I'm definitely gonna get tweeted out for this, but like, uh, yeah, I mean it's a completely unacknowledged problem. In fairness to them, you know, like the inflation schedule isn't gonna like drop to zero for a long time, but like certainly people don't seem to be Bitcoin people, however you want to define that, don't even really seem to be willing to like acknowledge that at some point it will exist. So entirely separate to the question in ethereum but i completely agree okay so Um, so here's how i kind of like summarize i think i may have tweeted something like this like a long time ago but like the dirty little secret of both both camps the ethereans and bitcoiners the bitcoiners don't want to admit that it need that they need their block space to be valuable and they need to deal with the mev problem in order to be well actually that's uh sorry i uh i think just to, you put it very concisely there. The problem they have to deal with is that valuable block space is MEV. Well, there you go. That's another dimension, yeah. And then, but the 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 thing that um, Ethereum advocates don't like to admit, maybe present company excluded, <laughs> I'll give us a pass on this, is that ETH needs to have monetary premium. So it's issuance policy matters. It needs to become a money because if you become a money to the extent you 
are a reserve asset and a store of value, you kind of paper over uh, some of these problems. Now, is is that true? Because like we we started this whole thing with almost the uh, the conclusion that we've reached, which is these assets need to become money. Like they need to accrue a monetary premium, or the whole thing doesn't work long term. Yeah. So how did we get I there? I think we're super we're super down the rabbit hole at this point. Yeah. But I'm gonna add even like one further nuance, and then maybe we can we can zoom out and kind of like consider the whole picture, right? Um, and the nuance to Ethereum, I think it's awesome that you brought up the Bitcoin analogy. The nuance to Ethereum is that Phil Diane's paper, um, Flash Boys 2.0, showed that application layer behavior can create MEV, right? And so for Ethereum, as compared to Bitcoin, the problem certainly exists in both systems, right? The instability without the block subsidy, or rather that any proportional to value transaction fee scheme is MEV. Um, and it's just that in Ethereum, we have the further complication of like what every transaction is doing, whether it be moving a bunch of tether or, uh, trading on Uniswap, which creates an arbitrage opportunity and MEV, uh, is kind of like in some sense worse, or at least could be than a simple transfer. Um, and I think like, James Presswich summarized this pretty well in in a tweet the other day. Uh, you can't write a script that finds all MEV, so it doesn't exist. Sorry, that's the rule. <laughs> um, like that's kind of the problem that we're dealing with here that we don't really even know or can know like how bad it is. Yeah, I get it, and I think you know on the on the on the Bitcoin side too, it could become the case that that assumptions change. Binance is buying mining rigs, right? What if Binance becomes a very large centralized mining facility, and then it it can maybe extract some of these MEV sort of um, you know uh, capabilities in its crypto bank? But but let's 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 zoom out again uh, and and talk about Charlie why why sort of the summary is these assets ETH needs to be money, Bitcoin needs to be money, and by that again we just mean store of value asset for this whole thing to uh, succeed? Why Why is that the case? So I think, you know, I'll try and give like the one or two sentence version. Um, we know that we can't fund protocol security with competitive transaction fees or not uh, non-constant transaction fees. Um, and we know this from the paper on the instability of Bitcoin without the block subsidy, which applies equally to Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, we know empirically that uh, MEV, quite a lot of it, exists on Ethereum today. And we know that the amount of MEV that exists is a function of uh, the behavior of applications on Ethereum. Um, so we net out from this saying, well, um, we can't assume that transaction fees are additive to protocol layer uh, platform security at layer one. Um, we know that applications running on top of this platform can uh, parasitically add to um, you know, the incentive to destabilize its consensus process. And so you kind of need to assume two things, uh, in my opinion. One, that the base asset is sufficiently valuable um, to basically socialize the security of the platform as a whole. Uh, to such a degree that it it just doesn't seem 
like feasible to corrupt. Um, and secondly, uh, you need to assume that there is a way to constrain the amount of uh, parasitic application layer behavior um, to like not eventually topple over. Ergo, these things need to be reflexively valuable. Exactly. And so there's one, there's like one point here, which I'm sure is going to get debated, um, which is that, you know, EIP 1559, the base fee that is burned is additive to protocol security, um, even more so in a proof of stake context, right? So maybe Ether doesn't need to be money if like fee burns far exceed, you know, the amount of MEV um, or it you know, we don't need a perpetual block subsidy because the amount of uh, the fee burn exceeds the amount of MEV. Like empirically, that's not the case, right? Because base fee burns scale in the number of transactions that happen on the platform, whereas like any two transactions can have zero or a billion dollars of MEV within them. Um, and so uh, I think like state rent EIP 1559 base fee burns are great because they're additive to platform security. Like the vast majority, if you break down on a pie chart, in my belief, will need to be like the moneyness or the ability to um, socialize platform security with a monetary premium. Because per like personally, again, I don't believe that fee burns, state rent, et cetera, will like be sufficient to cover the cost of MEV or parasitic application incentives. Which is why I think possibly we've come to a similar conclusion, maybe it's from slightly different angles, which is like the open financial system of the world, again, to the extent that there's only one or one becomes dominant, will have at its base layer, a store of value monetary premium type asset. It can't maintain first place unless it does. But let me ask you a question about alternative base layers. So uh, Cosmos, for example, that is a, uh, Tenderman anyway, is a paradigm investment, but I want your personal take on this. Um, Cosmos is very clear that atoms, the token behind the Cosmos network, are not money, never intended to be money. Inflation schedule uh, and, and such also sort of makes that true. Um, you know, protocol validators can, can vote on issuance. Lots of things uh, make that right. true. Can it exist as a base layer without becoming money? I think what you just said about MEV and other you know approaches um, might mean you th you think it can. You think a cosmos is viable without so, atoms being money? Yeah, I think I'm going to walk back a little bit to the Ethereum <laughs> case first um, and say my belief is that Ethereum can work if Ether is money and can socialize like a sufficient security budget for the platform, right? Like, I think that's a necessary um, component. But to be honest, I don't know that that's necessarily enough or that um, it's not the case that sort of parasitic application incentives like compound on one another to the point where it doesn't matter. The monetary premium doesn't matter. It's still overridden by sort of the asymptotic MEV behavior of the platform. So, you know, I think that's kind of like a contentious statement. Um, 
I don't think that it's the obvious conclusion, the obvious logical conclusion. I think it's very possible that Ethereum does work and remains secure, economically secure long term. Um, and that's my hope. But I also believe like it's possible that it doesn't. Um, and so what alternatives at that point seem credible? And is that where a Cosmos and Atoms kind of, you know, fit in? They're not trying to be money, but, you know, they could develop some sort of premium outside of like some sort of economic uh, security outside of being a store of value. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so the, the sort of Cosmos holistic thesis, maybe not specific to Atoms, although, you know, we could we could talk about sort of the hub, uh, the Cosmos zone that they secure sort of the their specific dynamics but the cosmos thesis as a whole is that like in short if we figure out that we can't socialize the security of a general platform general smart contract platform by diluting a monetary premium then every application may need to pay for its own security and if every application needs to pay for its own security then like what's important to interoperability is shared standards, um, shared languages, and like the ability to interoperate uh, and for a smart contract, a comparable smart contract ecosystem to develop without relying on the homogenous security of a shared base platform. And so what Cosmos is, is not any one blockchain, but rather basically like a set of standards by which to uh, create many of them and like allow them to interoperate uh, without needing to share security. The difference between an empire and individual city-states has been an analogy. Yeah, I think that's fair. I also think that the cathedral and bazaar kind of idea is fair from a security perspective, Um, which is, you know, in Cosmos, like... uh, any individual application security could fail. Um, And that will have ramifications on the broader ecosystem. But there is not, or there shouldn't be, any one individual application whose security is, like, literally critical to the ecosystem's uh, survival, right? In the same way that, to be honest, like in Ethereum, to the extent that it becomes insecure, Ether is not able to pay for the Ethereum platform's security, like we don't have a platform left. Right. So the central point of security of Ethereum, it rests in this one single asset Ether and it's one single mechanism for uh, providing consensus, uh, which is proof of stake, right? And so since everything has the security of all platforms and all applications on top of Ethereum rests upon those two things, it becomes the one single point of attack or capture or coercion uh, versus like a more distributed system where there are just a mesh network of, of, of platforms and protocols that all kind of stitch themselves together where failure in one of those applications is relatively compartmentalized uh, in relation in, in comparison to if everything is built on top of one blockchain. Is that, is that the right representation? Yeah, I think so. That's, um, that's actually a very nice way of putting it. So, Charlie, I want to finish this with one last uh, line of questioning before, before, before we wrap this up. Um, the Madasha testnet uh, spun up last week 
And if everything goes according to plan, it should be launching in November, which which means that phase zero staking of Ether goes live in, in this year, hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, and after speaking with a bunch of you know ETH2 devs, they are all sort of on board with this concept of compounding progress, where phase zero took a really long time to get to. If you want to, you know, if you want to count the maximum years, it's it, it's five years since the genesis of Ethereum did it take us to get to phase zero. But phase one, no one really thinks that phase one is all that far after phase zero and, and phase two. All these things are happening in parallel. Meanwhile, we have EIP one five five nine and the burning of ether and of transaction fees, which is guesstimated to be arriving sometime Q1, Q2, 2021, um, based on the the, uh, conversations that have been going on with the EIP-1559 implementation team. My my question and and, uh, what I'm trying to get out of you is going back to the conversation of reflexivity inside of these crypto applications, crypto networks, and how that will impact the broader sphere. So if we are just a few months away from staking, which is a core pillar of the ETH value accrual mechanism, and maybe just after three or four months after that, does ETH burn go go live? And then maybe three, four or five months after that, do we have sharding and scale? Uh, do you do you and do your partners at Paradigm think about this, uh, this bam, 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 one, two, three, four, knock down the, the obstacles for, for Ether's value proposition happening in pretty quick succession? And like, and then um, making that, uh, keeping that relevant to the reflexivity of these uh, systems. How do you guys think about uh, all of these things tied together? Um, so I think <laughs> I'll make two controversial comments uh, on the Ethereum roadmap. Um, I am more confident that it won't fail today than I was a year ago. I also think there's uh, a greater than 50% probability that we never get sharded execution environments uh, or any ETH2 roadmap beyond phase one. Um, today. How about one? So, how about 1.5, Charlie? You know, the, the idea uh, of 1.5 is basically like what we get is um, proof of stake and then ETH. Data availability. Yep, data availability yeah. and then everything scales with rollups. Yeah, so that's that's why I say greater than fifty percent. I think you know, I'm not sure that it's legible to everyone yet. Like why all of what we talked about with respect to MEV um, and application layer incentives is kind of an input to um, this question, but it's not purely about feasibility of execution environments or like that rollups are enough. You know, with ETH2 data availability and proof of stake. Um, it's also about like centralizing MEV extraction into rollup proposers. Um, and I think that as of right now, like that, I'm not sure if it's m- the more likely than like the original ETH2 vision, but if not, it's like pretty quickly getting there, I think. Um, and I think ETH 1.5, um, you know, rollups uh, with sharded data availability and j- basically just execution of fraud proofs on the beacon chain um, is a very similar model to Cosmos's. If you imagine that, like the hub, uh, you know, provided 
like a shared layer for um, fraud proofs, uh, you know, at least of uh, the ones it chose to. The idea here basically just being that like in the ETH 1.5 world, it's important to remember that rollups can't talk to each other without making um, idiosyncratic security assumptions, right? If there's fraud on one rollup, it can impact another to the extent that they're interoperating. Um, and so it looks, it looks a lot like Cosmos, um, to be honest. And I think, I don't know, it'll be very interesting to see how it develops. Um, I don't feel like there's enough clarity yet for me to be really confident in like how it will go, both in terms of like how ETH2 will go if we get 1.5 or, um, kind of the original, you know, full sharded execution vision. Um, but I think it's very interesting. Um, and especially to the extent that, you know, what we're currently seeing with DeFi kind of continues and maybe even honestly, we start seeing minor censorship in practice, like that could push it to this must be the vision for Ethereum going forward. That's what I would look for. If in the next year or two, we start seeing miners not follow uh, protocol or start extracting value themselves, censoring transactions, which is quite possible, then I think we get ETH 1.5. Very cool, Charlie. We could spend a whole another hour, I feel like, talking about these things and going back and forth about them. Um, it has been a pleasure to talk to you, sir. I think you've got a depth of understanding that uh, folks listening to Bankless need, particularly with topics around economic security, um, you know, monetary premium, and, and MEV. So we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I mean, to be honest, I, I'm just like a very delayed and less eloquent repeater node uh, of Vitalik. So <laughs> I would just drop all the links to everything that he's written. I, I feel like we uh, all are to some degree. Yeah. So, yeah, all of, all of us together kind of generate a, a mutual understanding of what the hell Vitalik is talking about. <laughs> so it takes a village. Uh, it's like the the crypto equivalent of Simpsons did it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, Bankless listeners, this has been Charlie Noyes. want to leave you with some action items today. Um, the first thing you should do is read some of Paradigm's research, one of which we will include, Bitcoin for the open-minded skeptic. That is sort of an intro to, uh, for institutions primarily, on why Bitcoin is a meaningful asset. Secondly, let's include some, we'll include some links to uh, articles that Charlie mentioned. One, on the instability of Bitcoin without block rewards. And then the second, the article from Phil on MEV will even include some Vitalik comments that Charlie will send us after the show. The third thing, David, we are at 93 five-star reviews, my friend. Do the math. How far are we from 100? Yeah, really, really far. So we need everyone's help to get to 100. The Bankless Nation recently passed uh, 10,000 subscribers. And the fact that there's only 93 uh, five-star reviews on our podcast makes me a sad boy. So if you could go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us that five-star review so we can get the Bankless gospel into as many ears as possible, we would really appreciate it. I think we're going to hit 100 right after the show, David. I've just got a feeling. Uh, risks and disclaimers, everyone. ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. Bitcoin is risky. Everything we talk about around yams and DeFi are very risky. You could lose what you put in. 
We are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks so much.